I am delighted today to be here with Adam, who I met in the comment section. I meet the most interesting people in the comment section because I get intrigued by things they say, and then I think, ah, there's a connection there. So um, Adam, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our viewers and tell me your story, maybe a little bit how you grew up. I, I know what you're doing now, but I'd like them to hear your trajectory and how you came to what you're doing now. And also hear any connection you might have to Jordan Peterson or Paul Vanderclay, that kind of thing. Does that sound good? Sure, absolutely. So this this space space of the internet, you know, that we're we're all kind of watching. Um, I'm really excited to see it kind of come along and see these dialogues open up. I I really had a pretty typical middle class, you know, Midwestern upbringing. I remember as a kid being like interested in bigger ideas. My dad was always in technology, um, sort of as a, as a lay person, which was really cool. Actually, it was a neat, um, neat thing to grow up around. My dad actually fixed arcade games, like a road technician for arcade games. And then when those things started to become computerized, he had to sort of delve into that world. And so he's talking about like servicing pong games and stuff like that. And, and if I'm, if I remember right, pong is, it doesn't even have software. It's just like, it's a board with chips and there's, it's not like, you know, today where you code. And so I always grew up around, you know, technology had some idea of that. And then like around high school, I got really interested in just sort of bigger philosophy kind of issues, but never really had anything, never really had anyone to help me aim at anything. So I remember reading, you know, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time and, kind of trying to reconcile that with my conventional, you know, Midwestern Lutheran upbringing and what that all looked like. Um, you know, fast forward through, you know, college, I, I have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry that was pretty much the, the goal of that degree was to get into dental school. And so I went through four years of dental school. I'm currently in private practice as a dentist, and then also doing a master's in computer information technology at the moment. And, um, I will say more than any other field of study, I've really sort of fallen in love with computer science. It's, it's incredibly interesting. And um, I am just starting to scratch the surface. And so when I talk about some of these things, I'm sure there are gonna be people who will correct me or tell me that I'm you know, not understanding this property of you know, computation correctly. But at the same time, it's, um, it's a fascinating space to dive into. And I'm really grateful to be interested in kind of these two avenues at the same time. And so what is, you know, what is computation? What do computers do? How do we use them as society? Which I think is really important. And also, um, you know, the, the computational piece of it, but then broader, you know, philosophically, where are we going as a society? What's, um, you know, what are these ideas that are sort of baked into culture that might get weeded out? What things are, I don't know, where are we going? I guess as a sort of long-winded way of saying that. So then, then when did you run into Jordan Peterson? <clears throat> uh, my first, I think it was, he was doing, I think it was when he was doing his interview tour for his first book. I happened to catch one of his interviews where he was talking about, I think he went through like the rules for life. And a lot of the stuff he said made, made a lot of sense. Like, um, like one of them was don't bother children when they're skateboarding. And that really resonated with me as somebody, you know, who grew up skateboarding. And 
the it was the biblical lecture series was kind of the first time I really heard him talk at length about a topic. And, and I was really hooked at that point to, to some of those ideas because to see the Bible analyzed psychologically it, it, in it was just a completely different way of looking at that I ever see critically or non-critically. Like I said, I grew up in the Lutheran church. And so our view of the Bible was, was one thing. And then there was also an academic view where you can look at it as like a historical document that tells us about, you know, a past culture and what that might be. But for him to look at it as like, you know, what are the, what are the personalities that this is talking about? What behaviors is this modeling that we might find ourselves in, you know, in, in our relationships in the present that I think that really hooked me. And whenever somebody asks, you know, they're kind of interested in Jordan Peterson, or they said, Hey, I, I really looked at it, but I don't know what he's about. It's all this political stuff. I said, we'll start with the biblical lectures. Cause I, I really think those are the best. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, I, I just devoured those. I, mm -hmm. I had uh, run into him like maybe a year before he started those, but I didn't know about the biblical lectures until he was about halfway through <clears throat> And so then I, I had the first six to binge watch <laughs> yeah. and then I, then I had to wait week by week for the next ones. And it oh, was wow. way worse than waiting for any, any, you know, ending season or, you know, mm -hmm. it was way worse to wait for that than it was for any other thing that I had ever waited for, because I can't wait to see what he has to say about the next thing, you know? Yeah. Then, then I tried to show one of them to my husband and we got like, five minutes in and he's just glazed over like what is this guy talking about <laughs> yeah right because I think you have to have a little foundation in um well maybe you just have to start with the first one you have to because they build right mm -hmm. yeah. so for anybody who wants to start listening to them I think they should start with number one because the, in the first one it's like three hours long and he lays the foundation for the whole thing and if you don't get that maybe it makes it harder to understand the rest of it the lectures are really good too. I really enjoyed, I think it was the 2017 maps of meaning or something like mm -hmm. that. Like he put the whole, his whole college course yep. online. And I think, I think it was the last time he taught that course. It may have been, he went through Pinocchio mm -hmm. and I think the lion King might've been in that one or the previous year, but those are also very good. Yeah. Also his personality, the, the series of lectures on personality are excellent. Oh, I think I, was that the new one? The one they just released a couple years no, ago? No, this, this is from his Toronto lectures. He, okay. What he did was he looked at different key people in history. Like he has one on Nietzsche. He has one on Jung. Yeah. He has one on, oh, I did see some of those. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I do see those. He has one on um, Frankel, you know, all these different mm -hmm. people that have been influential in his life. He goes through all those along with other people and, um, yeah, so cool. So I heard you met Paul Vanderfly. Yes, yeah, we did a Rando's conversation. So I connected with Paul on, we actually talked about uh, church stuff of, of all things and sort of this renewed interest in orthodoxy. So I'm a big um, big fan of Jonathan Peugeot, as mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people in the space um, are, and go currently to like a non-denominational, like modern church you know, when you see like a big mega church on TV, that's kind of how our church is, even though we're smaller in numbers, it, it's very like, 
you know, lights and high production and the music is mm -hmm. really good. And, and um, was curious to kind of pick Bahal's brain on some of that, because he is probably one of the, he's one of the few really vocal Protestants in this space. I know there's a lot of people that even if they're not Orthodox in practice, will say something like, you know, if there is a true religion, or if I have to pick one, it's going to be Orthodoxy, or maybe they even would call themselves, you know, an Orthodox Christian in philosophy, even if they don't go to the church. And so we dialogue mostly about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I also attend a, a Protestant church, have for, I mean, I've been a Christian for 40 years. Hmm. And during all of that time, I have gone to one version or another of some sort of a Protestant church, mostly evangelical churches, um, <clears throat> just about every flavor. I've gone through every flavor. Yeah. And, and the church that we're at right now is not particularly what I would call strong in the things that are super important to me, but it is really strong in uh, emphasizing small groups and commitment to one another as a body and commitment to the community in terms of service. And, and I kind of think that's one of the foundational things that even when there's other things missing, if you have that, you can, you can get the Bible study on your own. You can watch lectures on, you know, YouTube, whatever, but you, you need that commitment to the body in order to learn the lessons internally, right? It's, you can't, you can't just hear it and then go off and do your life normally. <laughs> you have to hear it yeah. and then implement it. No, absolutely. I, th I think that's 100% right. And um, in some ways, that's a little bit of a segue to, to you know, the comments that I tend to make on Paul's videos, especially in his videos in technology, because I feel like he's doing a really good job with some of those and tying it into these ideas with John Verveke and, and just like res uh, relevance realization, things like that. But you mentioned you know, knowledge that you have to embody and, and truth that you have to embody. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that and, and sort of, I guess more, it, it's kind of been something that has been below the surface ever since I've got off social media, like, you know, was it 2008? So however many years ago that was, but then kind of coming to terms more recently with like, what are we embodying when we interact with these technologies? I mean, I, I don't have Instagram. I don't have TikTok. I don't have Facebook. And I still get the report every week on my phone that says you've been on. It's generally over two hours a day that I'm interacting with this device. And I'm somebody who really doesn't use social media that much. And how is this affecting me? This is well over, you know, 10% of my waking hours. I'm staring into this, this brick and, you know, multiply that by, 5 billion people or whoever, however the number is that has access to a smartphone, probably less than that, but certainly many, many billion people have access to a smartphone. And what are we, what are we training our brains to do? What are we training our consciousness to do? What are we telling ourselves is important? Even if we, you know, say certain things are important, what are we, what, are, what truth are we embodying when we, you know, when we do that? Well, one of the people you pointed me to was Jaron Lanier. Jaron Lanier. He's... Yeah. So I have a little clip that I, I thought we might play at this point. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. that would be okay. that would be fantastic. Okay. There he is. 
Yes. I wanted to start right about here, I think. Trip, we'd eventually destroy ourselves. That's what happens when you're on a power trip and nothing else. So the idealism of digital uh, culture back then was all about starting with that recognition of the possible darkness and trying to imagine a way to transcend it with beauty and creativity. I always used to end my early TED Talks with a rather horrifying line, which is, we have a challenge. We have to create a culture around technology that is so beautiful, so meaningful, so deep, so endlessly creative, so filled with infinite potential that it draws us away from committing mass suicide. And, uh, you know, I mean, so it's, it's, we talked about extinction as being one and the same as the need to create an alluring, infinitely creative future. And I still believe that that alternative of creativity as an alternative to death is very real and true, maybe the most true thing there is. In the case of virtual reality, well, the way I used to talk about it is that it would be something like what happened when people discovered language. With language came new adventures, new depth, new meaning, new ways to connect, new ways to coordinate, new ways to imagine, new ways to raise children. And I imagined with virtual reality, we'd have this new thing that would be like a conversation, but also like waking state intentional dreaming. We called it post-symbolic communication because it would be like just directly making the thing you experienced instead of indirectly making symbols to refer to things. It was a beautiful vision, and it's one I still believe in. And yet, haunting that beautiful vision was the dark side of how it could also turn out. And um, I suppose I could mention from one of the very earliest computer scientists, whose name was Norbert Wiener, and he wrote a book back in the 50s, from before I was even born, called The Human Use of Human Beings. And in the book, he described the potential to create a computer system that would be gathering data from people and providing feedback to those people in real time in order to put them kind of partially, statistically, in a Skinner box, in a behaviorist system. And he has this amazing line where he says, one could imagine as a thought experiment, and I'm paraphrasing, this isn't a quote, one could imagine a global computer system where everybody has devices on them all the time, and the devices are giving them feedback based on what they did, and the whole population is subject to a degree of behavior modification. And uh, such a society would be insane, could not survive, could not face its problems. And then he says, but this is only a thought experiment, and such a future is technologically infeasible. And yet, of course, it's what we, we have created, and it's what we must undo if we are to survive. So... <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts about that, but I'd like to hear your thoughts first. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, I think the most profound thing about if that is a genuine quote, and he has a lot of those like mic drop kind of quotes. And I, I have actually gone back to verify some of them because some of them are like, is this, this is really crazy if this is true. In general, most of them check out from what, what I find. Um, I mean, you wonder if kind of like Jordan Peterson says about artists, a lot of times, and I mean, as an artist yourself, you would certainly have more insight into this you know, than I would. But artists can almost predict the future in a way that maybe they're not even intending to. And a lot of these early computer scientists are very artistic. We tend to think of like, you know, a guy with the nerd glasses and the pocket protector. But a lot of these people were very like right brain kind of visionary thinkers. And it, there, there could be some element of that, of just somebody saying that, you know, here is the natural progression of things. Here is what you know, what might happen, what could happen. And obviously, you know, you, you never underestimate the potential of computational resources at this time. And I think we've, we've actually gone the other way. I think we may overestimate what computers will be able to do in the future. But I mean, it's obviously interesting that he's sort of describing the world that we're in now, back in the 50s, saying here's something to avoid. Um, I mean, there are a million different directions you could take that. I think the question that immediately raises is, okay, here's where we find ourselves now. Um, here's what somebody at least has warned us against. What is the way out of it? And I think that's a question that's on a lot of people's hearts at every level. Do we try to, you know, legislate? Do we try to clamp down and control and, and undo some of these things? I honestly think the, the best hope is, is sort of understanding almost at the personal level for everybody involved in these technologies and then exercising a certain degree of virtue in that, which is, is kind of a, a cop-out to say that, but it's just like anything else. All I can do is, you know, look at my own, my own sin, my own deficiencies and try to fix that and try to help other people. And if the work that I'm doing happens to be on technology or if it's dentistry or whatever it's doing, if I, try to focus on minimizing myself and just serving the other, then it has a, a better likelihood of, of getting us all to a better spot, even though, you know, my contribution statistically is small. There was, um, I'm sure you're familiar with a quote. I wish I, it was in, was it Alexander Solzhenitsyn that said it was something like everybody is responsible for every bad thing that happens or I think that might have been. I, I've I've heard Jordan Peterson say that. I think yeah, it that's where Nietzsche. Okay. So it, it, yeah. Oh, oh no, no. It, it, what, I think it was Solzhenitsyn. I think it was, you're right. It was. Yeah. I thought it was either Solzhenitsyn or Dostoevsky, but yeah. I um. I, I think it is. Solzhenitsyn. I think it is Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. And so I think at the at the level that's that's the best answer I've kind of come to is um, kind of understanding that, and then at the personal level, you know, everybody doing the best that they can, whether it's quitting social media to incentivize companies to do things differently, whether it's working on these technologies and, um, you know, keeping those things in mind that, you know, where not only where we want to go with it, but maybe where we don't want to go, but we could go if we, if we do it wrong. Uh, what are your thoughts on, it? I would be curious to hear your thoughts. 
Well, I'm going, I'm going back, not, not so much to what Norbert Wiener said, but to what Jaron Lanier himself said, because I think you told me he was one of the, the uh, instigators or the, the first designers of virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And now he sees that there are some problems with it. And so he's trying to find, he's trying to communicate some of the problems that he sees with it. But I sort of felt in that clip, and in, in, in the longer video that it comes from, that he was making the statement that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could create this alluring, infinitely creative future for, for um, virtual reality, because that would keep us all from committing mass suicide. <clears throat> and to me, <clears throat> that's the very problem itself of these people with these utopian ideas mm-hmm. of how they're going to fix the world, because this infinitely alluring um glimmering light thing that is this virtual reality that he's talking about is like we're just trying to create satan right here on earth you know the light bringer Mm -hmm. let's make our own light bringer that can make our lives infinitely happy so we don't all have to commit mass suicide um i i think his own he understands the problem. He understands the dark side, but he still has a vision that if, if he could do it his way, that, you know, we'd all be brought into this new future somehow, instead of bringing it down to the level that you're talking about, which I think is the essential thing that each of us has to become virtuous. Each of us has to back just this morning. I read uh, the only social media I do is Twitter. And yeah, I, I don't mean there's anything wrong with anybody's social. <laughs> I, I, I did not. No, mean and to. I'm, I'm not, I'm not really trying to protect myself. I'm just, this saying, is for me. I'm saying, yeah. I know what it does to me when I use it. I know the person that I become when I use it. I don't like it. Yeah. And, and that's my, well, so what story. I started noticing that happening in my life. So what I did with my Twitter thread is I absolve, I got rid of every single Twitter um, following that I had where I was following anybody political or oh, following yeah. anybody um who was an influencer. And mm-hmm. I brought myself down to just following philosophers and pastors nice, <clears throat> and my own personal friends. And um, it's been an invaluable, I would say tool. But I, anyway, I posted this because I thought this was a great quote. <clears throat> the mistake folks are making in this rough hour is trying to figure out how to fit a little more of God into their crowded lives. We need to do the opposite. Start with God, center your life on him, and work outward from there. Our spirituality moves from something that is part of our life to the epicenter of our life from which all other things flow and to which all other plans yield. Plan to become the most converted person your family and friends know. So why don't we go ahead and call this the new monasticism, rearranging our days to be centered around our life in God, Drawing upon his strength for our resilience is the only way we're going to make it. And that's John Eldridge. I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. any of his work. Is he the, is he wild at heart? Or yes. that's the yeah, yes. okay. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I have yeah, read that. He, he's the wild at heart guy. And he has this cool thing where if you sign up for free, you get an everyday devotional. And the oh, devotional cool. is always little clips from one of his books. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, very cool. So I like the way he thinks that that we each have to manage our own world before we, Mm -hmm. you know, like Jordan Peterson says, before you go out and try to remake the world, can you take care of your own world? Yeah, absolutely. 
last night my husband and I were watching a silly um, romantic comedy with um, Paul Rudd and I can't think of the girl's name the pretty and pink actress whatever her oh, name oh I'm not yeah well anyway I know it if I heard it <laughs> yeah so um, in this movie he is having a significant problem because he's president of his father's company and his father did some shifty stuff that he didn't tell the son about and the son is the one that gets to be under investigation so he's being investigated by the federal government for stock fraud and his secretary comes over to try to tell him the things that the lawyers are talking about and he says no no don't say a word to me and she says but i just have to tell you because you know you're going to go down if you don't have this information and he says don't tell me because the only thing I'm holding on to right now, the only thing that's keeping me sane, the only thing that's keeping me afloat is that I know I haven't done anything wrong. And if I listen to you mm. tell me something that's illegal for you to tell me, I won't have that lifeboat anymore. Mm. I thought, wow, that's Jordan Peterson in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, that, that is was powerful. From, that was from 2010. Wow. Yeah, I thought, wow, that's whoever wrote that script had a deep understanding of. Yeah, of truth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, I think I think your um, your assessment of Jaron Lanier being too much of a utopian, that is precisely the thing that I think is wrong with his outlook. And, and that's why I would I wish he would be in this space. I really do. I think I would love to see a conversation between like him and Jonathan Pajot. Because the, the reason that I really like his ideas and I promote him to anyone that will listen that's remotely interested is because he's in that space. So he grew up next to, you know, he's in California. He grew up in the, the 80s, 90s in these tech circles with these tech guys. And he's the one guy that has like a way out there alternative view of what the internet should be. And so he, he's sort of a guy that's, well, at least here's this other guy that understands things a little bit differently that is appropriately critical of the way that we've gone, even if he doesn't have the answers, which I don't think he does. Um, even his understanding of virtual reality, I think he did not, I think that presentation on his part, he should have explained his views a little bit better. So if you watched, um, if you watched the dialogue with, with Lex Friedman, when he talks about virtual reality, he said, it's really interesting. Um, one of the things that struck me was, he says the most magical moment when you're in virtual reality is when you take off the headset and your brain has to get reacquainted with how real the world is around you. And so it's, it's almost, it's not that you're divorcing yourself from the real world into this, into this magical space. That's, that's an alternative. It's more, I, maybe John Verveke would call it a psychotechnology or something like that, where you can really, it, it's a, it's a technology to, maybe take your brain to certain places that it it can't go otherwise but there's still a grounding in reality and i i i don't want to put words in his mouth but i think he would see that view as is better than something like the metaverse where the idea is you wear this thing on your face and now you can you know instead of talking to your family in the room you're you're next to your family they're doing their own thing but you're talking to somebody in sweden that you just met you know in a virtual bar and it's such a it's a different outlook, but I, I do understand. I have my um, back on that speaker. That is, uh, it, I call, still call it an Oculus Quest, but it's 
oh. Facebook bought it. It's Meta, <laughs> and um, I actually pre-ordered that thing. It's it's the the second version before it came out, and just to kind of jump into virtual reality and and understand you know what it is. Um, I don't know. Have you had opportunity to interact with with it at all or done any? I, I tr- we we live in Silicon Valley. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're right there. So, yeah. So there there used to be a store down before COVID. Yeah. It was a store downtown. That's whole thing was to promote new ideas. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I, I suppose it was that kind of a consignment where these startups and new companies could come and put their little gadget someplace, and you could go yeah. in and try these different gadgets. It wasn't really a place to buy so much as it was a place to get acquainted with these things. And I'm guessing maybe when when did Oculus first come out? 10 years ago, maybe? Um, yeah, the Oculus, the company Oculus, it's one of those really, you know, quintessential Silicon Valley stories. It was started up but in somebody's garage and then, you know, mm-hmm. turned into this amazing thing. And Facebook bought them, I don't know, 10 years ago. Or, yeah, maybe no well, this, this was before Facebook bought them anyway. And yeah, still but Oculus. they were big. They were kind yeah. of the big, they revolutionized the way to put a screen in a headset with a, a different lens technology, mm-hmm. which made it like a, you know, a third of the cost of any alternative. So they were kind of the first one to make it, you know, instead of a $3,500 headset, now you could get one for $1,200 or something like that. Yeah. So it very well could have been. Yeah, it was about that time. And um and so we tried it out. My husband, my daughter, and I all tried it out. My daughter at the time would have been 15, maybe something like that. And one of the apps that you could use it on was uh, doing an art thing. And so you you used it to create this art piece and you could watch the art piece take shape in front of your eyes and it became a 3D kind of a thing. So, yeah, I mean, it was kind of fun. It was a little awkward. I think they've probably done a lot of work on it since then, but, but you, it became embodied. So you're using mm-hmm. this embodied thing to create something new. And, and so it was kind of fascinating, but then later on um, somebody came up with a, a paper version of this and my husband is a techie. And so he gets stuff. And so he got this thing in the mail where it was a collapsible paper version of the headset only cost oh, yes. a couple of dollars very cheap and so we all tried that and and that let you like you could go to a concert of some famous person mm-hmm. and feel like you were sitting in the stands with all the people yeah. sitting around you and all the activity around you and watch the concert and be there in virtual reality or they had another one where you could walk through new york city oh sure yeah so it was that kind of thing with this little paper box on your face. Yeah. So we did try those, but it just wasn't fascinating enough to me that I would want to spend time on it. I would much rather listen to Paul Vanderclay or talk to oh, you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Something like that, you know. There's a couple a couple takeaways I took from it right away, which is, that's that's actually a, a fascinating piece of technology. It's built, um, it's essentially like an Android device. So it, it uses like Android hardware and things like that. But the the resolution's really good. And then a key piece with virtual reality is the lag between what it senses you're doing and how fast it projects that to your eyes. So if you turn your head and then it takes a second for the screens to adjust, your brain is going to have more trouble accepting that as, you know, as a real phenomenon than if it happens immediately. 
there's one, and this is a, the app that I share with people. It's called Richie's Plank Experience. And the only thing in this game is you, you push a button on an elevator and the elevator takes you up and it opens and you're at the top of a skyscraper and there's a wooden plank just, you know, out into nowhere. And the challenge is you step out onto this plank and you hear, you hear there's, there's helicopters flying by and it puts like a heartbeat in your ears. And that to me was a very real moment of like, there's adrenaline that I, I can't get oh, yeah. rid of. I can't yeah. rationalize my way out of this. I know I'm in the kitchen. I can hear my kids playing there, but there's still adrenaline. And if I look down, there's, there's more adrenaline and there's a hesitation. There's, there's a real hesitation that I can't talk myself out of. And so to me, the value in that experience wasn't necessarily a novelty of, ex, of the experience. It was, wow, I, my like, you know, lizard brain, whatever you want to call it, biological mechanisms are so low in the programming, lower than I understood them to be, that what, you know, what implications does it have in the rest of my life? Which is, I mean, I'm taking this way, way farther than it needs to be, but at the same time, like, am I making decisions emotionally based on fear and that maybe I should be making more rationally? Am I, you know, not, what's, what is my perception of reality really what it is, or is a lot of this? So there's that. that that's, there a, that's the whole question right there. Yeah. Because our perception of reality can be so skewed. Mm -hmm. Oh, it absolutely. And, it, and, absolutely. It can, and for years, it can happen for years. Mm -hmm. I, I'll give you an example in a second, but, but before I get to that, um, I wanted to say, don't you ever have that same experience when you're watching a movie? I mean, I, I, I went to yeah. uh, Top Gun with my husband last week mm -hmm. and I had to spend half the movie like this <laughs> because, because there were scenes in there that my heart was pounding so hard. I literally thought I was going to mm -hmm. have a heart attack because I, I get, I have to walk out of some movies because I get too involved with the characters. Yeah. I care about them. And when it starts to go south and I know it's going to go south in a way that I don't want mm -hmm. to watch, I got to get away from it because yeah. it has a real visceral impact. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the difference in virtual reality, I mean, I try to think about this on the fly. I think the difference is because I am in control the whole time. So it's, if, if I see something scary or hear something scary, that's, um, that's like content that, I, I'm consuming in a movie and I, I'm the same way. Like I, I can't watch horror movies. I just can't, I will keep thinking about them. I, can't, I just can't handle it. I'm not a horror movie mm -hmm. person, but in that sense, there's this constant, like talking to myself, like you should be able to do this. This isn't scary. This is fake. And then deep down in there, you're, there's something that's like, no, this is like, don't go off that cliff. This is a, this is a falling off place as that, you know, <laughs> bring it back yeah. to Jordan Peterson. That's a falling off place. And it's no, it's not, you can, you can step, you're going to be fine. So it's, it's not as much the, I think it's not as much the, the fear or the visceral, visceral reaction as it is watching how that influences the way that I behave in the game. So if I was doing this on the computer, I could hit the button and I could just walk the guy off the cliff and it would be like, you know, whatever, but now it's me. I'm, you know, I'm the guy in this game. Got it. Okay, Even though I, I know now. that I'm not. Yeah. And 
the same thing underwater. I, I'm uh, I, I'm like making myself sound <laughs> like such a wimp because I'm afraid of everything. It's, I'm just I'm listing out all my fears. But like underwater stuff has always really freaked me out. And there's another experience. And the best virtual reality games are really like an experience type thing. It's not just like a realistic version of a game. I find it's more like what's the experience. And so you can swim underwater with these, you know, extinct dinosaurs. And that's to the like it's to the point i had to take the headset off because you're, you're standing there there's like ocean it does a really good job with like debris in the water and the way the shadows are and you see these sort of dinosaur shaped shadows up there i'm just like i can't do this i'm in my kitchen and i i i am compelled to take this thing off my face to get out of that environment maybe similar to you know putting your 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 sweatshirt over your face like that i think there i think there's some things that are in common I think with VR, it's a way to do that that is is just another deeper level into your psychology. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about, in a lot of these ideas, I don't know where I picked them up, but like, I know Jaron Lanier had talked about that when they did their research in their early AI labs, they would do things like that. So they would do a connection, they would do, have an experiment where they would put, you know, a VR headset on two different people, but have this person's head movements control this person's field of view and vice versa and so it's this really it it would take a while to coordinate but eventually they were able to do tasks but what he said was those it was almost like like an inappropriately strong connection between those two people that would viscerally develop just by taking part in that experience and so you wonder like are there applications for you know couples therapy or, or something like that in this space, because I think it's just, I think the idea is how close can we copy reality and make you feel like you're there? Cause you, you know, wear the TV on your face. And I don't think that's necessarily has to be the only direction of that technology, which unfortunately looks like it is right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is so interesting. Um, this is only peripherally connected, but I'm going to talk about this instead of the other thing that popped into my head because that was a little too personal. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But um, four or five years ago, I was listening to this um, neuroscientist, or maybe she was a neurobiologist, neuropsychotherapist, something or other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her specialty was on the psychology of food, on, on the psychology of eating. And so she was talking about um, how people handle, you know, how, how can people get over food addiction? And mm-hmm. so she told a bunch of stories about what these studies that they did with rats and that they did with people whose brains had been divided by that. I forget what that thing is called, where they, they sever the corpus callosum in ep- epilepsy. Back yeah, in the sixties, they did a, a series of um, surgeries on people with epilepsy, severing the corpus callosum because they thought that that would um, reduce the number of seizures. And it mm-hmm. did reduce the number of seizures, yeah. but it had some kind of strange side effects because now the left brain and the right brain weren't connected anymore. And so this guy, they have a guy sitting and they did some scientific studies with these people that had this had been done to i mean obviously voluntary scientific study mm-hmm. so the guy's sitting in front of a screen and if i recollect properly there's a on the left side of the screen there's a 
drumstick. And on the right side of the screen, there is, I mean, a chicken drumstick. And on the right side of the screen, there's a picture of a snowy driveway. And then down in front of him, there's a bunch of cards and each card has a picture on it. He's supposed to pick up a card and tell how it relates to one of those screens. Mm -hmm. So if he picks up something in his right hand, because that's your left brain, and how, how does it work? The, the way the brain works, one, one side of the brain is it's connected crossed. to the visual, the visual cortex looking at the other side of the screen. Anyway, the, the way the screens get tangled up for him, he picks up a picture of a chicken and um, he recognizes right away that it's connected to this drumstick. But when he picks up a picture of a, um, oh God, I'm telling the story so bad now. No, that's the the point of the story is that he he makes up a story to figure out why one thing is connected to the other thing when it mm. has to do with his left brain, because his oh, left brain is the speech center, and what is actually happening is that his left brain is telling a story to his right brain to explain something, or the right brain is telling a story to the left brain, kind of making up a story to justify what mm -hmm. he said. They said, why did you connect this to that? And his brain is making up a story. So her whole point was, I have to look up this study because mm -hmm. it's so critical. Really, it is critical. Your, one side of your brain can lie to the other side of your brain with impunity. Mm -hmm to make you feel justified about something. So it's yeah. not just that somebody else is lying to you. You can lie to yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things you were talking about early, earlier with uh, Richie's Planck experience and how skewed our vision can be and how we can lie to ourselves about reality. Um, I don't know how many of these episodes you've heard, but part of my backstory is that I was married for 20 years and uh, found out after 20 years of marriage that my husband was gay. Such a wonderful man. I mean, an absolutely wonderful person. He was a great father to our daughter and, and all of that. But then I find out that he's gay. And the hardest part of it was not just that I found out that he was gay and that he was leaving me. It was that he thought our 20 years together had been hell. In oh. my mind, our 20 years together had been this great romance that we had this deep connection. We loved each other. Mm -hmm. We were so honest and real with each other. In reality, there was this whole world that we oh. had never talked to each other about. Obviously, mm -hmm. there was something going on in him that he'd never talked to me about. I had no idea. So I lied to myself all those years, or I had a skewed picture of what mm -hmm. was happening. I, I, this came back to me, I think, was it yesterday when Paul did these two episodes on Love's Executioner? Mm -hmm. Did I've seen the first those? one. Yeah. Unbelievable. You won't understand what I'm talking about until you watch the second episode. Okay. <laughs> watch the second episode and it's like mind blowing. I watched that and I thought, oh my God, I am that woman. <laughs> my wife bought the book on Audible as soon as Paul mentioned it. Yeah. She's, uh, she's a degree in psychology. She's very interested in that stuff. So yeah, she's yeah, already started yeah. the book. It's unbelievable and what paul did i mean that's some of his best work ever in doing analysis i think he just yeah he just made it come to life but the other thing that came up for me when you're talking about you said i'm the guy in the game it's not the other guy i'm the guy 
So when somebody else is in danger, it's easy enough for us to, mm-hmm. you know, blow it off. Or even like the first month of the the uh, war in Ukraine, man, I was on my knees every day praying. And then over time, it just sort of drifts away. And I kind of yeah. lose contact with it until somebody brings it up again. And then it's like, oh my gosh, that's happening over there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, thinking about it. I'm not connected to it at all. It's easy enough for me to just blow things off when it's somebody else in danger. Mm -hmm. But man, if it was me, if I'm the guy on the plank, yeah, you bet there's going to be adrenaline and decision-making. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, yeah, I had seen videos of that and it's, it's interesting personality wise to watch how different people interact with that. So my, my dad, who's, he, he's a very, he, he's a deep thinker, but he's very stone cold analytical on things. No problem. He's just, you know, walked out there. And then my mom tried it and just like, could not get to the point where even like, even push past it. It was just like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. And just to see that, how different personalities can handle those things. I think that I'm glad there are people with different personalities in this world because I've often thought like if, if everyone in the world were like me, we would be in really bad shape. That, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about how they might use uh, headsets for virtual reality. I mean, use headsets for marriage counseling. And uh, what you just said now, right now, reminded me of this guy that was a marriage counselor back in, I want to say the 90s, maybe very famous marriage counselor somewhere in Colorado, I think. And people paid a lot of money to go see him. But his first lesson was always the same with every couple that came to him. He'd look them both in the eye and he'd say, okay, your assignment for this week is to look yourself in the mirror every day Hmm. and say to yourself, what would it be like to be married to me? Wow. That was enough for most people. Changed them overnight. Yeah. Because, you know, I I got problems. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know it would be hard to be married to me. But I never think about that. I only think about how hard it is to be married to my husband, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's, that's so true though. I mean, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Well, so one of the reasons you're here is that you are studying computer science for your master's. And I'm very interested in this thing about Wolfram's theory. And we don't have to talk about Wolfram's theory if you don't want to, but I do uh, want any, any direction you want to go. I'm good. Okay. I do want to talk about, um, so there's this physicist I talk to quite frequently named Glenn. Mm-hmm. And long before I ever heard about Wolfram's theory, Glenn was telling me that he thought that the, that the fundamental underlying structure of the universe was computational. And I think he came to that on his own because he's, He's a mathematician and a physicist, mm-hmm. and they're both very, very important to him. Um, and for a long time, I would ask him a lot of questions, just trying to wrap my head around that, because I don't want to believe that that, that we are living in a virtual reality universe mm-hmm. or that the universe is a computer program or anything like that um, or a simulation. But Glenn was trying to explain to me that computation does not have to be something like a computer that computation Mm -hmm. is a, mm, I don't know if it's a construct or a philosophical 
anyway, I, I would like to get your viewpoint on what you think computation is or what you think of when you think of the word computational. Oh, that's a, that's a great, um, I'm going to be wildly outside of my area of expertise if I speculate on, on any of this. But um, I mean, I have, I think that society at large understands computation as, as the thing that computers do. And so this, there's this idea that any information processing can be done by computers as, you know, as we know them with, with binary calculations, um, given enough, you know, time and resources. I philosophically, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think we can, and I, I have nothing to, you know, I'm not going to bring up data to support this, anything like that. The idea just does not intuitively seem right to me. And, I, and there's a couple, I can, a little bit of intuition I have. So, um, the, the one would be like, and I've thought about this is like the last week. So I'm kind of like trying to develop this on the fly. When you think of your brain or how your brain is, is designed, there's definitely electrical signals. There's definitely some level of computation going on. But when you look at what nature does and how elegantly nature puts together bodies that, that do things, the way your muscle works is, is absolutely fascinating. It's molecules that are, you know, ratcheting along other molecules at these incredible speeds. Nature tends to build things with immense efficiency. And so I, I really believe whatever we're doing in our brain has an incredible degree of complexity for its physical size, like, like almost incomprehensible. When we look at what computers are doing, it's, it's mathematics on binary numbers. And, and the, the zeros and ones is kind of the cliche. It, it, zero and one is really just, it's a, it's a representation of two different states. And so it's, it's the minimum number of letters that you could have in, in transmit any data. So if, if all I have is a letter A, I can send you a letter and it's just all A's and it can never be any different. But if I have even like A plus a space, I can send you A space, A, A space. And so there's, there's a lot of different letters I can send you in that language. If I have two different, you know, two different characters in my language. And that's, that's what binary is, is a zero and a one. Um, zero typically represents, you know, low voltage and one is, is high voltage. Um, but the complexity required to do a little bit of arithmetic on a binary number is actually pretty significant. You need a fair amount of transistors and silicon and logic gates just to, you know, just to do one operation. And so we scale this up to a degree that is, it's astonishing to us when you look at what a phone can do, when you think that, you know, your, your smartphone has more computational power than the entire world did just, just a few decades ago, we tend to think that there's this trajectory into infinite computational um, capability that we're going to have. And so we should be able to get whatever the brain is doing down into something pretty small. And I'm, I'm really skeptical of that because again, like I said, when you look at the way nature designs things, it tends to be pretty efficient. And so I don't think our brain is any, you know, any bigger than it needs to be to do what it does, you know, electrically or, or computationally. And I think, I think there's at least some reason to believe that we will never be able to perfectly represent that with, with binary computation, because that, even like the difference between digital and analog, the word like analog computers, it's, it's, it's an analogy. So when you look at an analog computer, like a, even like a clock, there's an analogy in the clock 
these, these, you know, something in the clock is spinning analogously to the way the earth is spinning. And so these, these motions are happening at the same time. There's, I mean, setting aside digital clocks, there's not like a discrete set of points that you have where in digital computers, we do have that discrete set of points, even like, you know, on, on your phone, you can have a picture of an analog clock, but there's only a discrete set of states that that can occupy. And so I think there's something to be said for digital computation being not necessarily the only way to compute something. But again, I am wildly outside, probably like, um, who was it that was on with Wolfgang Smith? Was it Richard Smith, the the computer yeah. scientist? He would be uh -huh. much more, you know, qualified in that, you know, that avenue. So in terms of uh, what is computation, I, I genuinely don't have, you know, don't have a good answer to that. I want to know a little more about, you know, Wolfram's ideas, because I uh -huh. think that will, I think it'd be interesting interesting but did, did you down. happen to catch scientific geniuses video about wolfram smith the the intuition of uh, i mean of wolfram not wolfgang smith and wolfram yeah the, know, the right? intuition of stephen wolfram okay no i did not see brilliant that absolutely brilliant and a kind of capsule of stephen wolfram's life and vision mm -hmm. and um and then looking a little bit at a new kind of science in the cellular automata, but not getting into um, his new theory yet. The, so the first episode he did was just kind of up through the new kind of science book. And, um, but then lining that up with some um, kind of Renaissance era thinkers, especially mm -hmm. a guy by the name of Robert Flood, is so interesting. So I'll, I'll put that in a, in a link here. Um, but also, I was going to say that, that Glenn's definition of computation is that it's a symphony of choices over time. That it's not just like zero and one is the binary thing, right? But, but that it can also be yes, no. So you, you choose this path or you hmm. don't yeah, choose okay. that path. I see. Or, yeah. or you choose this path or you don't choose that path. And so it's this yes, no kind of a thing. And that you can think of... Um, you can think of, let's say, a score for a, a piece of piano music. You can think of the score as the rule set, mm -hmm. but then the rule set needs to be executed so the rule the, so that the uh, the piano player has certain moves that they make that that read the score and execute it on the piano. So mm -hmm. you need a rule set. You need an instrument. <laughs> You need someone who's playing the, who is executing uh -huh. the rules on the instrument. And then out of that, it opens up this whole world. And you, I'm sure you've heard Jordan Peterson talk about music and how all mm -hmm. the layers line up. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Meaning arises. And that in that way, you can think of computation as being something that it produces something incredibly meaningful, but it's a kind of a transport system from from a greater mind to, to all the other minds. I mean, the, the beauty that opens up to mm -hmm. everybody listening came from one mind in the beginning yeah. onto that piece of music. And then it, it gets turned by a series of computations into something beautiful and meaningful. Oh, I think that's, I, I think that's absolutely it. And that that's kind of what I think inspired the comment that I made on Paul's video where we connected because that was, the, the second course that I took in 
my um my com it's computer information systems it's, it's very strong overlap with computer science so sometimes i just refer to it as computer science but the second course i took was mathematics for computer science and it was then when you realize like the mathematic mathematical minds of the the past euler and you know some of those guys have such a strong influence on what we're doing today there was no in that class it wasn't anything like here's how to code or here's how to make the computer do this it's here's how to here's a problem and i want you to solve it as mathematically elegantly as possible so that you can then tell the computer how to do it in the most efficient way and and that that's really honestly i feel like where i where i fell in love with the field because and you hear these you know I, now i must i'm served all these youtube videos like how to get ready for your interview at google and stuff like that and it's it's typically cliche now when you're interviewing for a software engineering position they will ask you to solve a problem they'll want you to whiteboard it with arrows and bubbles and where the data goes and how to be as efficient as possible and then code it out because those resources are they're finite. I mean, they they may be tremendous, but they're finite when you multiply it over by you know a billion users, and so it, it was that realization that it's these it's these great minds and it's this legacy of mathematical elegance throughout the whole thing that is completely different from the the I think the common society view of computers is you know ones and zeros add together we can do math and now we can do you know light ray tracing and games and then on up from the emergence comes. You know, I don't know if you've seen Dolly 2, which is pretty phenomenal. This this new AI project that just came out a few weeks ago. Um, but the the truth is, it's really, it's it's emergence. I mean, at, at the level of bits in the early 80s, when they were making, you know, Donkey Kong and things like that, somebody had to figure out how to make these transistors do that. And now somebody had to figure out how to make you know, scale up from that to make Tetris and word processors and Nintendo and Excel. And it's, I mean, it's, it's always been, like you said, it's been that mind transferring those algorithms down and then asking, you know, essentially a rock, somebody referred to as a, a microprocessor as a rock that we tricked into thinking. And I think that's a, a good, a good way to view it. The AI question is interesting because you wonder, you know, what, what is this going to do long-term? I, I personally think AI is, is more like leveraged intelligence than something that's going to be, you know, ultimately making its own decisions. I think that we just kind of, we're going to outsource more decisions to the computer, but I think it's, I don't know. I, again, I, I'm still, I, I'm about, I'm an educated lay person on a lot of these, these things. Well, but you're, you're thinking that that's the important thing you're learning and you're thinking and the thinking is taking you to places that's opening up vistas because when you were talking about the emanation down from the mind and then the emergence up, right? That mm -hmm. that's the part that everybody's missing is the emanation down. Exactly. 100%. Right? right. So they're forgetting that what Wolfgang Smith would call that vertical causation. That's exactly. Coming down. And that happens at every level. There's always some vertical causation. He's not just talking about like God sitting up in heaven and causing everything. He's mm -hmm. saying that there are levels of causation that are going all the way up and you have to keep looking at these levels. And um, my husband has been in the technology industry for a long time. He started out in, um, let's see, uh, telephony and networking and things okay. like that. And then he moved into 
routers and and then eventually into chips and then from chips wow. he moved into Wi-Fi and now he's he's working for a company that actually makes a very sophisticated high Wi-Fi box that brings the internet into the house. Wow. He he's finally got to a level where he can design his own thing and they'll build it and it's you know oh, it's, it's really amazing to see something come out of his mind and then turn exactly into thing, yeah right so but one of the things he always told me that was happening in the industry and he's been talking about this for years is that over time we discount the basement more and more and more so everything rests on the basement there would be no internet right now if it weren't for routers and chips and all of those things but they've all become commoditized when he first started out in routers, maybe to get somebody set up with routers might cost a couple million dollars. Mm-hmm. Now it's probably five thousand dollars, right? Yeah. So, but the the work that's going into those is just as grueling as it ever was. Hmm. But now it's been discounted. Chips used to cost a lot of money. Now there's some chips that can do, you know unbelievable tasks for 50 cents yeah but it's a it's a chip that used to cost you know a thousand dollars or something like that so we keep discounting all these layers that are at the bottom that are Mm -hmm. creating the foundation really you think of all the emanation that went into building that foundation and all of that emanation building that foundation layer upon layer you know like they always say we stand on the shoulders of giants We absolutely do but all that's been discounted now and all the money now goes into somebody has an idea about a little piece of content and they're making gajillions of dollars on that. But the people that are grinding out the chips and grinding out the boxes are still working 24 seven to grind those yeah. out. There's just not as much money in it. And, and it's almost the same thing as God gifts us this amazing universe you know, with all this vertical causation happening at Mm -hmm. all these levels and gives us the opportunity to participate in that. And we discount all of that. And all we care about is whatever makes us happy at the moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting parallel because I I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's easy. I think as, as humans, once you're even, you know, in the networking space, like that, the networking engineer, their basic needs are met, you know, in a way they don't have to worry about infrastructure. Or they take for granted all the, that, yeah, that is really interesting. Cause I, I think that's absolutely right. And then, then the next question is what, what do we do? I mean, we, we have, like you said, we have the freedom to kind of do any, anything now. I mean, and we're spending our time on these devices, you know, watching TikTok and what is it all, you know, what, what's the solution to that? What do you think the solution to that is? Well, I guess I'm, I'm more, I, when you, when you first started talking about that, what I'm thinking in my head is, you know, what's the phrase, uh, cui bono, who benefits? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Who benefits? Here's all this, um, there's all this intellect and drive and personality and creativity out there. And it's all getting swallowed up in this, um, box and mm-hmm. you know one of the things jaron lanier talked about is how it's sucking out all of our data and all of our intelligence and then analyzing it and using it to convince us to behave in a certain way who benefits yeah and you know i'm i 
years ago, I thought there was some sort of elite group that was benefiting from this. I don't think that anymore. I just think that the enemy is very good at, um, the enemy is very good at influencing groups of people and influencing ideas and influencing directions in such a way that that if we're not careful, we can fall into those paths, you know? And so that's why it goes back to what you said at the beginning about each individual person making sure that their own life is as pristine as it can be and that we don't let ourselves fall into the utopian thinking that imagines that we can build this great universe if we can just get out there and be more powerful, right? But mm-hmm. but to concern ourselves with what we can do to be sincere and earnest and truthful and loving and caring and yeah yeah i think that's i think that's that's really what attracted me to talking about this idea in the space of of technology because there's i feel like there's there's a dialogue that i would love to see and like i said i i would i would love to see jaron dialogue with you know paul or 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 Jonathan Peugeot or John Verveke or somebody like that, because technology is society-wide. It's sort of this, you know, fire from the gods that dropped out of the sky in the mid nineties and and it, it covered the earth and it's here now and we all have to deal with it and live in it. And there's a point where symbolic thinking is really valuable because you can say, Oh, here, well, here's what, you know, you, you see these powers and principalities and Google is actually kind of very similar to an ancient God. And I think those <laughs> ideas are, are all valid. I really do. But at the same time, it's like, I'm Googling things. My pastor's Googling things, you know, Orthodox priests, they're using these tools, they're streaming on YouTube. And so unless we're going to completely move out into you know, do what, do what the Amish do or something like that. When mm-hmm. even they use some technology, I don't think it's just a matter of learn to live with it. I am wrestling with the idea that there's a lot of, like you said, that's, that's out. There's a lot of things that are morally like technology can take you in a direction that is not morally good. And I know that as somebody who used to use, I mean, I saw Facebook eat my time. I saw Facebook, you know, encourage me to try to present myself a certain way that mm. was just not good for me. So it, it, it was leading me to behave in a way that is, you know, that was not what I, I wanted to be. And because of that, I would say that whatever algorithms, whatever was, they're not, whatever was going on, there was not morally neutral. It was actually a negative thing. And I wouldn't even put that as malevolence on the part of the company. It's just, mm-hmm. it's what came out. It's what you, you could say that emerged from the desire to engage more users. They found that. And so instead of viewing technology as inherently more morally neutral, the question I'm wrestling with is it is it inherently negative and we're redeeming what little parts we can, or is there a way that we can understand it and actually try to turn it towards something that's towards something that's good? And that is um, that that's kind of where where I am right now. And my hope is that we can. And my hope is that if we have people working on these things that even understand or, or start to think this way that slowly over time that uh, that level of you know the people building technology if they sort of embody this idea of personal virtue or thinking of of the other 
greater than themselves, will technology start to look different? Will things shape, will, will society be able to shape a little bit differently around technology or our relationship with technology? I don't think you're going to get that from the top down. I think that's really utopian to say, we can pass this law, we'll make them behave this way, and then life will get better. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that's, you know, that's a tenable solution. But at the same time, I don't want to just throw in the towel and feel like, you know, isn't this symbolically what's going on with technology? Isn't this really weird to watch or fascinating to watch our world crumble and technology is sort of the catalyst for that? I think that's a little bit, a little bit defeatist to look at that. But again, mm -hmm. I may be, you know, maybe a utopian, uh, you know, too much in that sense too. Well, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think it, it comes down to the same issue as the political arena, I think, because there's a temptation on the part of many people to just drop out of the whole political thing and say, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to participate anymore. It's mm -hmm. too complicated. It's too dirty. But um, was it Burke, Edmund Burke, that said, all it takes for evil to take control is for good men to do nothing. And so, mm -hmm. so if you just sit around and watch it happen and go, look at those bad people, they're just letting this thing happen, you know. Um, but addressing what you said about, I think it's not so much that we have a leadership problem, even with having certain expectations of the people that are making the software and making mm -hmm. the, the, the internet access and so forth. It, it, it's just like the political arena. We don't have a leadership problem. We have a followership problem. We're always complaining and moaning about why aren't there better, why aren't there better candidates to choose from? Mm -hmm. Well, there aren't better candidates to choose from because we are not better people. If we were all better people, then what would rise to the top, what the cream that would rise to the top would be better leaders. And, and, and then when you were talking about technology, linking us all together, that's where, that's where the danger comes from in the technology. It's not the technology itself. It's the fact that all of us are linked together. So all of our worst impulses, our mm. best impulses are linked together, but our worst impulses are also linked together. And our worst impulses come straight out of the garden, right? I had a kind of aha moment yesterday when I was reading um, in Genesis where, where Adam says, God says, you know, well, I can't remember what God's question was, but Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I hid because I was naked and afraid. Now, I don't remember the exact order in which mm -hmm. he said that, but God comes back and says, who told you you were naked? And I used to read that either like who told you you were naked or who told you you were naked? But yesterday when I was reading it, I read it. Who told you you were naked? Hmm. And all of a sudden, my brain just went like. Adam had always been naked, but it wasn't until he ate the fruit of the tree of good and evil that he saw nakedness as something to be ashamed of and to hide from. So what the fruit of the tree of good and evil did was turn his mind from gratitude for God's good gifts to seeing mm -hmm. the negative side of things. You know, you're withholding from me, therefore I don't have clothing. And not having clothing is something to be ashamed of. And you did this to me. It, it turned from a, 
a praise of God to a, a criticism of God, right? An oppositional position. And we're all in that position. So if we're all linked together and we're all in that position of opposition against God and seeing all of his good gifts as garbage, instead of seeing his good gifts as good, then of course, when we're all linked together, it's going to be toxic, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's why if we're going to be connected, we have to be really vigilant in our own approach to that connectedness, right? If we can't be vigilant, we should just get off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely the case. And, and like I said, I think, I think that answer is different for everybody. Um, you, you always hear the famous anecdotes of, you know, the people that work high up at the tech companies don't let their own children use their products, which mm-hmm. I th- I, there's definitely some truth to that. And, you know, my kids, I will probably keep them off social media as long as, you know, as long as I can, um, especially during development. I think there's a lot of research that says that's valuable, but yeah, like you said, I, it, it was sort of that observation of like, I see other people using this and it's fine for them. But when I used it, it was not good for me and it was just time to not do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, I think that, I, I don't think there's, you know, super easy answers to that, but. Um, well, would you have the time or the energy to be getting a master's in computer science if you were still spending as much time on social media? No, no, for oh. sure. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And um, yeah, I'm a little, I'm really encouraged too how fast these ideas tend to be propagating. And I always, I always couch that a little bit with the statement that, you know, I know YouTube is feeding me things that it thinks I want. So when I see more Mm -hmm. people talking about these things, maybe that's just YouTube figuring out that's what I want to watch. But I do feel even in the- That's hard to figure. Yeah. Yeah. But I do see even the people that I would know that we're more aggressively naturalist 10 years ago have kind of mellowed out a little bit. So like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, even recently, Richard Dawkins was a, a really interesting one to see him kind of mellow out a little bit on, um, on religion. I, I'm cautiously optimistic. We can, you know, we'll, we'll see something. Did you see the conversation between Jonathan Pajot and Bernardo Castro? No. Is that new? Oh, yeah, it just came out a couple of days ago. And oh, no, I didn't see that. And then they ran it again today as a live stream. Oh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, I've listened to Bernardo Castrop in the past, and he always sounds so completely secular. I mean, Mm -hmm. spiritual in one sense, because he's talking about this universal mind thing. And it was really hard for me to kind of get a grip on what he was talking about. But when he started talking with Jonathan, they brought it right down to this issue of um, why is it that the church has become this, how, what's the phrase Paul uses therapeutic moral deism. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I know what he's yeah. It's always, you know, here are the ABCs of how to be a better person. Every mm-hmm. time you come to church, you know, there's four ways that you can do X. And the next week it's, there's three ways that you yeah. can do Y. Right. And uh, those kinds of messages are so empty, but um, he got it right down to that point, talking about that stuff. And Bernardo said to him that that is what has kept him from becoming mm-hmm. involved in the church. And then they had wow. this really good discussion about what, 
what it really means to be part of the church. And Jonathan was really open with him and he was really open with Jonathan. And it was a great conversation. And, and I see like all the people who've been following Bernardo Castrop, who probably were completely secular, when they hear that conversation, it has to have some sort of impact on them because they're going to get a different viewpoint of what he's talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am really, I am so encouraged because I, I did not see this coming. Like I, I've been, I've been a Christian my whole life. I mean, we moved around a little bit from, you know, church to, and went through times I didn't take it seriously. And um, we're in a different church now than the church I grew up in, but I'm really encouraged. Like I, I was born in 1983. So my like junior high, high school, college was right when new atheism got really big. And it was like, the obvious trend is that smarter people are going to be less and less religious over time. And it seems like in the last five years or so, it's kind of been trending the other way. And again, it's, it's been a really great surprise to, to see. Well, I can't find very many smarter people than the people I get to talk to who are people of faith. I mean, such brilliance. I talked with this guy yesterday named, um, Martin, I was just, I was like drinking from a fire hose for an hour and a half, but all of it was fascinating, interesting. It was all connected together and it was every bit of ancient wisdom and modern wisdom that you could even imagine all packed into an hour and a half. And it was like, wow, wow you know, how does somebody even learn that much stuff? But he's been a missionary for 35 years and all of those years, he's oh, been wow. continuing to learn. He hasn't just been being a yeah. missionary. He's been continuing to learn, probably because he doesn't use social media. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, no intellectual shortage there. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. Plus, if you go back and you look at the Greeks and the and the uh, and the Romans and look at the things that they wrote, and then you try to tell me that we've somehow evolved intellectually, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, that, those ideas are still out there, but I feel like they are not as mainstream as they used to be. So I, it's funny because I'm on a forum with like other dentists and people getting, you know, religious and political arguments like the it's it's kind of refreshing because it, it it's sort of my closest thing to social media is this this forum that I'll sort of go to occasionally. And it's like old fashioned Internet, like the early 2000s, where. Yeah you know, it's, it's not a Facebook group, it's its own website. And everyone, most people use their own names and it gets, you know, people get in arguments about different things. And so there, there is some sentiment still about, you know, people, religious people had no idea. Cause back then they thought that the sun went around the earth. And so obviously they don't know what they're talking about, but in general, the people that really seem to be thinking and evaluating these ideas, it, it does seem to be trending in a, in an ancient wisdom direction which is, it's really great to, to see that. Well, it's really great to meet someone like you and uh, you're young, born 1983. You're, you're moving on with your life. You're learning the things that are fascinating to you. And, um, and if you want to spend a little bit more time getting up to speed on Stephen Wolfram, we can mm -hmm. talk about that sometime in the future. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I definitely have to, uh, I'd have to check out the, a couple of those videos that you recommended, but I definitely yeah. will do that. Yeah. His, um, uh, his 
I think it was his first interview with Lex Friedman that's really foundational. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like uh, maybe three years ago, he did. I will check that out. Yeah. He did an interview with Lex Friedman. It's like three hours long or something, but yeah, he really went into detail and all, I mean, in the last two years, he's learned a lot of new stuff. So it's not all in there, but to me, the, the coolest thing about Wolfram's theory is this idea that that time is the updating of events. He separates space and time. Space okay. is space is the matter. Space is the little, he calls atoms of space, but now he's changed that word. He, now he calls them eames because atoms has already, has already been used. Sure, sure. Eames are substantially smaller than atoms, but that's what space is made up of. But they're all connected by edges. And that's what makes the universe. That's space. But then time is the updating of events. Every time events need, every time the Eames reach a certain configuration, they need to be updated to another configuration. And so this time updating events is, is very similar to what I would think of as vertical causation because it's instantaneous. It has to be instantaneous. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it wouldn't. Um, there is time in between each updating, but the updating itself is instantaneous as I understand it. So there's a rule. And if the rule in my mind, the rule is love, love is the one rule. And mm -hmm. that rule is um, manifesting the universe. And that rule is always manifesting the universe. So I think there's a lot of philosophical implications to what Wolfram is talking about whether his actual theory is correct or not, you know, I have no idea, but I think there are philosophical implications that are pretty interesting. So, wow. Does that, um, cause I know he has a lot of credibility in academic circles. Are there, is that theory discussed widely among like some of the bigger names or, you know, more prominent, like academia and things like that or they kind of they kind of make fun of it they kind of they do okay i would say patronize like he he did a convert he did a discussion with lawrence krauss yes a yeah few okay. months ago and lawrence krauss i mean they're obviously friends mm -hmm. but lawrence krauss was a little bit i read it as mildly patronizing throughout the whole conversation okay. like he like everything that stephen would say he would kind of yeah but you know joke around with him a little bit and he wasn't it wasn't like Lawrence Krauss felt he could learn anything from Stephen oh yeah but I think they could learn a lot from him because what he's talking about is some of what he's talking about is just very critically important like here's an example one of the things about Stephen Wolfram I really like is he's very generous with his um with his knowledge and very eager to get input into his ideas. So he puts out a lot of material and then he allows people to respond to it. And every working session that he does trying to get answers to this theory, he posts on YouTube. So you can listen to all of his discussions, whether he's talking to mathematicians or biologists or chemists to see how this fits in with his theory. So sometimes, and they're, they're long, they're like three, four hours long. And if you're not an expert in these things, and if 
it, a lot of it just wouldn't make any sense. And I'm not an expert, but sometimes I put them on just as background music and I listen mm-hmm. and then something will arise and I'll go, oh, wait, I, I know what he's talking about there. Well, one day I was listening to one of these and he started talking about one of his interlocutors has this idea that the Eames, these atoms of space, that they, they must exist. These are the fundamentals. They must exist. And they must be, each of them must be unique in order for the universe to hold. But the uniqueness of each Eam cannot be established within this universe. He uses the word Ruliad to describe the universe. So within this Ruliad, the uniqueness of each Eam cannot be established. It has to be established from outside the Ruliad. Okay. What they call the hyper Ruliad. Well, eventually they got to the point where they said, well, then there must be a hyper Ruliad above that and above that. And, you know, so they get in the infinite regression thing because he doesn't understand. um, He doesn't understand the philosophical implications, but Mm -hmm. because he's often said he'd like to know more about ancient philosophy, but so far he hasn't had conversations with philosophers. Yeah. Those are the ones I'm looking forward to because I think this idea that every eam, every particle of space has to be unique is like, that's just a beautiful thought. Yeah. Because that's the way God does things. The multiplicity is going to, every single one is going to be unique. And then it all comes from that unity, right? Yeah. I forgot what, I, I wish I knew who to attribute the quote to, but there's that quote that says something like, scientists are going to spend centuries climbing this mountain and when they reach the top they'll Mm -hmm. find the ancient theologians at the top waiting for them yeah and i think there's you see a little bit of that trend kind of playing out yeah Yeah, i'm gonna research that a little bit more that um wolfram's ideas that i think that you said the lex friedman podcast is a good place to start he's done he's done three of them i think the first one is much better at the foundational stuff and where okay. he brings up more of the philosophical implications and they discuss a little bit where the universe might have come from and i mean some of his idea he's still looking at it through a completely secular frame and so some of the things he says are like steven <laughs> you know but but um but there are other things that he says where you can tell he's reaching for something he he knows mm-hmm. that there's something more one of the other th- things about it that I really love is that he says most of the universe is computationally irreducible. Hmm. In other words, um, you can't know what's going to happen without just letting it play out over time. But um, there are little slices of computational reducibility, and those are the slices that we get to observe that allow us to establish mathematical principles and physical principles and chemical principles so where we can make sense of our world mm-hmm. happen in these slices of computational reducibility and then one of his other principles is computational equivalence have you heard about that i have not okay that's the idea that once a system becomes computationally sophisticated enough mm-hmm. to do certain simple computations like a a Turing machine okay. would be of a, a level of sophistication. Sure. Okay. Um, it's equivalent to any other computational system. So 
the, the computations that go on in a vortex of water in fluid mechanics mm -hmm. are equivalent in computational power to my brain. And, but my brain is computationally equivalent to the computational power of everything in the universe. So all these things are computationally equivalent. So he said, on the one hand, it should keep us from getting too proud about mm -hmm. what we can accomplish. But on the other hand, it should um, make us understand that we do have the same computational power as the universe. So, um, you know, some of the things he talks about just make you think about a lot of things, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's that. It's interesting. I, I was listening to this Jaron Lanier book. It's it's if somebody's interested in his ideas, the first book I would recommend is it's called You Are Not a Gadget. And it was from 2010, actually. So a lot of these things he's, you know, warning against have since happened. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's always the scary. Part. Yeah, the um, very similar thought experiment to the water in the drain. So he he starts this off and, and this is this is I, I honestly forgot the, the point of it, but I remember these thought experiments kind of being um, interesting. So one was, you know, to say you have a, a computationally sophisticated enough computer, you can simulate the behavior of a single human neuron. And so I can plant this one single neuron in my brain, replace one of the billions that's in there with this one probe that's going to read and write. And then in a computer in a different room is the software that will control that. So it's just a single neuron and this single neuron, when it gets its input and its output, it'll do the same thing as the biological one did. It'll just be software controlled computer in the other room. And I, I, my brain should essentially function no differently than it, you know, than it did. Um, but if you then, you know, iterate that over time and replace one by one, every neuron in my brain with that, synthetic neuron each time it should, I should be the same am I still am I still the same person am I still conscious and because that's all software controlled now you just turn off all the implants and it's software only in that computer is the, is the computer conscious now but then the next thought experiment that's a little kind of closer to what you said was if you have a thunderstorm which is significantly complicated and you have what he referred to as the infinite computer store and you run the program of the thunderstorm on a computer eventually you will get to a computer that runs that thunderstorm as your consciousness it, it, it because the idea is that like you said it's, it's as computationally complex and so the thunderstorm has enough complexity to run through the right algorithms as your consciousness if you know if it is really algorithmic like that and does that then mean the thunderstorm is conscious? And again, I, I don't remember, like th these are just little snippets in some of the chapters and where the actual point of that was. But um, I think it was kind of chipping away at this idea that consciousness is something that can just be you know, reduced to an algorithm that can be carried out by a computational device like a computer. Um, not really any conclusions, <clears throat> excuse me, but the one you mentioned the whirlpool being similar in computational complexity to, you know, to your brain. I, I think there's, there's some tie there that I probably don't understand completely, but it's, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm not exactly sure what he's saying either, but 
the the main point that he's drawing from that is that um, all of these computationally equivalent processes, it, it's not that a whirlpool can think the way that we can think or have consciousness like we can think, but, but a whirlpool goes through its uh, computation in a way that is computationally irreducible. There, there's so much complexity in it that you can't know where it's going to be at any given time without just letting it run through time. And, and that's the same way with us. You can't know where we're going to be at any time without just letting us run through time. Right. And so the universe. With the old Newtonian clockwork idea, the idea was that you could, if you knew where every particle in the universe was at this given moment, that you could tell where it was going to be at some point in the future. But now that we have relativity and quantum mechanics, that's not such an assured mm -hmm. thing anymore. So then that means that the universe as a whole as well, you can't exactly tell where things are going to be a thousand years or a billion years from now without oh, sure. just letting it happen, run through time. And so that's part of what he's talking about when he talks about things being computationally equivalent. He's, I see. Okay. If you imagine I, yeah, that I, each of us were a rule set in a cellular automata that was producing an irreducible complexity somewhere in the in the future of this, mm -hmm. then we are all computationally equivalent in that we are all producing complexity that is not reducible. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I I. I, I'm pretty new to these ideas. I, I do see what you're saying with that. Um, well, I think there's probably some of what you said too, but I'm just I saying. I think that, there's some parallel there that I'm not yeah. able to draw <laughs> given yeah, my limited yeah. knowledge. Well, I mean, because obviously Stephen Wolfram is this genius. He graduated from college when he was 15 and he had three doctorates oh, wow. or something by the time he was 20. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he started his own company when he was 25, I think, and, mm -hmm. and you know, has made billions of dollars. So yeah, that's incredible. Obviously, yeah. he's a few miles ahead of me. You know? Yeah, that's, yeah, I will definitely check out those those interviews, though. That's definitely something I should be up on. I'll put, I'll put some in the link, some of the ones. Oh, perfect. Are, some of the ones I think are better, because um, there are some that are, like, more rambling and other others that are a little bit clearer. And um, Sure. And in the in the future, we'll talk about Wolfram. Yeah, sounds that's good. that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. In the meantime, learn lots more about computer science because I have lots of questions. Okay, I will I will do my best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adam. Bye bye. Bye bye.